Our focus during this lockdown is on the work of the cross and how to be kind to, to each other. This was the main thrust from last week's message, and if you haven't seen it, it's online and you can access it whenever you like. Now, as we're in the Easter period, heading up to Good Friday and Easter Sunday, it's natural that we follow the Jesus story up until the empty tomb. Now, today we'll start with Jesus being anointed for burial. And as he's anointed for burial, not only will we see an unnamed woman do a beautiful thing for him, but we'll also see, see Jesus do a beautiful thing for us. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that even though we are in lockdown, even though we are in our own homes and separated from each other, we know that your church is still strong and together and united. Jesus, you are our head and our authority. We pray that you will make yourself more real and alive to us today. Be our assurance and our hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we pick up the Easter story in Mark's Gospel. It's lovely to be back in the Gospel of Mark. If you remember, last year we finished a 12-month series going through the first eight chapters of Mark. Uh, it was great. And today we're going to pick up in Mark, fast forward to chapter 14, where we see that Jesus is anointed for burial. So we'll start with Mark chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. Now the Passover and the feast of the unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. Why this backroom plot against Jesus? Well, from when Jesus first burst on the scene, he upset the religious leaders. They fretted and soured and fumed, and it just increased and increased as Jesus' power was made evident and his popularity increased. And it's at such a stage now where they are trying to find a clever, sly way to kill him. They can't arrest him in public and have him tried and killed because they fear a riot. So with their direct approach removed from them, what are they going to do? How are they going to arrest and, and kill Jesus? And unfortunately, it seems that Mark leaves us hanging. Uh, he breaks away from this story to pick up another story. And if we remember back to our series, you may remember the term Mark and Sandwich that I used. And, and this is where Mark will start telling a first story, and then he'll cut off and start telling a second story before he picks up again with that first story. So the original story bookends a central story. Now he does that for two reasons. One, to heighten dramatic tension, so we're left wondering what's happening with this plot, but also to emphasise the central story. This central story is the main thing that he wants us to focus on. Because as Jesus' death being plotted, outside the city walls in a small town called Bethany, Jesus is sitting down to have a meal. And we pick this up in verse 3. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Now to orientate ourselves with this meal, we need to think, well, who are the main players and what's happening? Well, we're referred to as Simon the leper. Now, we don't know much about the host. Uh, it's unlikely that he was still a leper. If he was still a leper, 
he would be ostracized, he would be uh, self-isolating with other lepers, and would never be able to host a meal. So the expectation is that he used to be a leper, and this is a way of designating and working out which Simon we're talking about. Uh, maybe, maybe Simon was a leper that Jesus had healed in the past, and that would explain why he's sitting down to have a meal with them. But whatever the case, we don't know. We just know that Simon is the host, and he and he's a good host. Now, in those days, meals were often much more open than our day. After servants had served the meal, they were allowed to sort of hang back and watch, even invite family members, depending on the context. And so, apart from Simon, Jesus, and his disciples, there were some people hanging around the fringes and probably some other guests as well. And it's into this context that a woman slips in and does something most unusual, unexpected, and to many at the table, most offensive. Breaking convention, and without so much as a buy your leave, this uninvited woman breaks an expensive jar of perfume over the head of Jesus. Now, who is this woman? Well, she's unnamed. We don't know a great deal about her at all. In Luke's Gospel, we are told very clearly that this woman is a woman of ill repute, a sinful woman. So not only is she uninvited, but she has a scandalous reputation. She's an embarrassment to everybody at the table except for one person. And what's the nature of this perfume? Well, nard, pure nard, is a lovely smelling oil extracted from a root found in India. It was often sealed in an alabaster jar, very pretty jar, to preserve it. Usually this jar was an all or nothing in its construction. There was no lid, there was no reusable seal. Once the neck was broken, the perfume had to be used at that time. However, the point picked up by those present was the expense. This pure nard was the equivalent of a whole year's wages. And let's pause for a minute. How much is a year's salary for you or in your household? Now think about if you possibly had all that money together, a year's salary, and then giving it away. Now some of us might feel comfortable about giving it to our children to help them into a house. Some of us may even feel comfortable helping out a good friend in a business proposition. Um, maybe the saints amongst us might contemplate at some stage giving a year's salary to, to the church or to a mission organisation. But how many of us would ever think of wasting 12 months' salary on a one-off action where we don't know how the recipient's going to feel and how we're going to potentially be scorned and ridiculed and certainly misunderstood? If it was me, I'd be thinking something like this. 12 months' salary? What a waste. Why not just take one month's salary, that's quite a lot, and buy some, some high-quality but less expensive perfume? No one ever made the difference, so you anoint Jesus with that very generous gift. And the other 11 months, well, well then you can give that away to the poor or do whatever you want. If, if that was me, uh, that's what I'd be thinking. And so we read in Mark chapter 14, verses 4 and 5, some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Now, I'm not sure I'd have joined in with words as harsh as that, but I sort of agree with their sentiment. It is really, at the end of the day, quite a waste of money. 
But Jesus didn't think this at all. Verse 6. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. A beautiful thing for me. Quite surprising, but, but doesn't it lift your spirit to hear Jesus tell this sinful, uh, disrespected woman of ill repute, a broken woman, outcast from all the upright in society, you have done a beautiful thing for me. Instead of all our grumbling and muttering and offence, Jesus puts us in our place and brings a delightful perspective to what she's done. She sees, Jesus sees the woman's act as an extravagant act of devotion. Devotion that's open and self-giving and splendid and beautiful. Holding nothing back, not even her life savings. Out of adoration, this woman lays not only this very expensive perfume, but her life before Jesus. And it's in public. And in all this, as I was thinking and praying about it, I... I stand condemned, for in comparison, my devotion to Jesus is thin and it's a pale wisp of a thing when I compare it to this unnamed woman. Yet though I am deeply humbled by her devotion, there is a sense where I can see that I can do better. My devotion can be fuller, more robust, more from an open heart. For Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 verse 42, if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. A cup of cold water in Jesus' name? Now, I mean, that's doable, isn't it? An act of kindness, as simple as that, as a devotion to Jesus? I think we can all do something like that, especially in these difficult times. Again, a kind word here. A thoughtful act of kindness there, for his sake, not for mine. A phone call to someone who's been on my mind at this time, uh, maybe someone outside Cromwell that you think, goodness me, they're, they're alone, self-isolating. Maybe, maybe I could give them a phone call or a text or an email or something like that. Maybe a card, a letter. Remember a letter with a stamp? Remember how to do those? For his sake, not mine. Maybe it's in this time when we have ourselves <laughs> shut up inside. This is a, a good time to reflect. Maybe there's a first step in reconciliation we need to consider. Maybe in our wider family or with a friend that's uh, exchanged. Maybe we need to make that first step. Maybe someone's caused us significant and genuine grievance and we're very keen to pay them back and we have to think, well, actually, no. No, for Jesus' sake, I will not hold resentment. And when we do, in Jesus' name, he considers that a beautiful thing. If this unnamed woman can honour Christ like this, this act of worship, well, I can certainly do better. Now, Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't let the grumblers get off the hook with just a rebuke. No, he goes on. Verse 7. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want. But you will not always have me. So let's be very clear. Jesus is saying, don't neglect the poor. He's not saying that. He's not saying never help the poor. In fact, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 11 goes like this. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your brothers and towards the poor and needy in your land. That's Deuteronomy 15, 11. 
So Jesus understands and expects us to be open-handed to the poor and the needy, to be generous. But in this context, he was aware that his time was cut short. He said, but you will not always have me. Now, uh, from where we left off in chapter 8, Jesus and disciples walked steadily to Jerusalem. Three times, Jesus said to the disciples on the road, I am going to Jerusalem to die. And they did not understand it at all. And so this is the context of verse 8. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. She has done this to prepare my body for burial. For the fourth time now, Jesus makes it clear to his disciples that he is about to die, to give up his life. Now, this pouring of perfume was normally done after a person had died, not before, after a person had died in preparation for burial. So this beautiful, wonderful aroma that was wafting from Jesus was a sign that he was a dead man walking. In just two days, he would be hanging from the cross. Hmm. Yet this wonderful fragrance not only pointed to the cross and the grave, but also to an empty tomb. For remember on that first Easter Sunday when the woman went with their perfumes and spices to anoint Jesus' body, well, the tomb was empty and the perfumes and spices were not used. Why? Because Jesus has been anointed now. You see, by accepting the perfume then at that meal, Jesus was making it clear that the gospel would not die with him. The good news he's been proclaiming for the last three years of his ministry will be transformed into the great and wonderful news of his resurrection. And it's a resurrection that comes with an open offer of love, acceptance and forgiveness to all who believe and repent. And this great and wonderful news was to be taken to the furthest corners of the earth, even to the bottom of the globe, even to New Zealand, the bottom of New Zealand, to Cromwell, where this wonderful extravagance, this no-name, unnamed woman, and her act of extravagance is part of our story. And how can we not be captivated by this open-hearted act of worship? And how can we not stand amazed at the gentle and embracing and delighting response of Jesus? The same response we receive from Jesus whenever we offer him the smallest act of devotion. Yet as much as we want to, as we want to linger in this moment of beauty, we can't. For the story tumbles on to the next event. This shaft of life that briefly illuminates a simple meal is quickly dimmed as dark and bleak and ugly storm clouds gather over the city. For we read in verse 10, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. You see, gloom had entered one of the twelve's heart, one of the chosen, one of the dear friends of Jesus. For whatever reason, this extravagant act of devotion and Christ's response causes the steel claws that have been slowly wrapping around Jesus' heart to clamp shut down. Betrayal, betrayal that probably started as a hint of a distant thought months beforehand in Judas's mind, this 
thought of betrayal has run its course. And here in these few short words lies the most infamous betrayal in all human history. And Mark gives us scant detail. There are no clues as we find in the other Gospels. Matthew tells us it was for 30 pieces of silver that he agreed to betray Jesus. The Gospel of John tells us Judas was the keeper of the common purse where he dipped into time to time for his own use. So maybe this financial extravagance was the final straw for Judas. Maybe he'd hoped that that money would go into the common purse so that he could pilfer it. In Luke's Gospel, we are told that Satan entered Judas at this point of betrayal. And yet with all these hints and clues, all we know is that for Judas, Jesus was no longer serving his agenda. And so in his opinion, it was time to jump ship. And so Judas does. And in a few short days, with a kiss, Christ is betrayed to the cross. This then is the anointing and the betrayal of Jesus as he moves ever closer to the cross. So we're going to leave the gospel scripture for just a moment to consider our take-homes. What are the practical things that we can do with this wonderful story? Well, remember at the beginning I said this is all about an unnamed woman who did something beautiful to Jesus and then Jesus doing something beautiful for us. So first, what's this beautiful act of extravagant that the woman has done well we've seen she broke a very expensive flask of perfume a year's salary and anointed jesus for burial and not just did she offer that very extravagant gift but her life herself and in this we're reminded that any small act of devotion act of kindness to someone else is in jesus's mind a beautiful thing a beautiful thing offered to him And so we are encouraged in this time, difficult time where it's easy, our world shrink in and we often only think of our own needs and those that we're living within our bubble. It's time to think how we can be kind, not just to those within our bubble, but those outside as well. And our second take home is Jesus' beautiful act of kindness to us. You see, this woman had no right to be at the table or even in the house or even within distance of the Son of God. But she summoned her courage and did not look just at her own sin, but looked at Christ. She took her most prized procession and herself to Jesus. And in John's Gospel, we see she also anointed Christ's feet and washed them with her tears. And Jesus did a beautiful thing to her in return. He accepted this sinner, not because of anything she did, but because of what he was about to do. In all likelihood, the woman probably had no idea that this was in preparation for the cross and with it the great saving work of all creation. He accepted this woman because he was going to the cross. And this beautiful thing, this making of this sinful, rejected woman beautiful, is what Jesus does for you and I. In the same way that Jesus accepted this woman, accepted, loved and forgave her, a woman of ill repute, Because of the cross, Jesus accepts us. He does a beautiful thing for us. And this is the whole basis of our trust in Christ, that he died on the cross for us to make us beautiful. For in two days from this story, as the Son of God hung from the cross, there was that faint trace of perfume that would have lingered. And in the agony of the cross, 
Christ would have been reminded that he had been anointed for burial and that this burial would lead to the beauty of the resurrection. A resurrection that we are assured makes Christ all things beautiful in his time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful story. Wonderful story of Jesus being anointed and that it was considered beautiful and then he did a beautiful thing back. He accepted her even though she was a sinner. We thank you that in all our troubles, all our concerns, our fears of the future, our our rumblings, our uncertainty, we thank you that uh, you are our rock and that your love, acceptance and forgiveness is what we hang into. Help us, Lord, to get through this next week. Help us, Lord, to do it where we understand more of the work of the cross. Jesus, make yourself more real to us and show us ways that we can be kind to others through Christ our Lord. Amen.